Brian, one of the pastors here. Um, about the baptism, um, a couple things. Number one is it's a unique opportunity. If you've never been to one of our baptisms, uh, I think, gosh, I, I wish we had the video. I don't have the video to show you. It's on our website. You can go to our website, and it, there's a link to it. Just go to calvaryso.com. There's a little section on the bottom where it says weekly. It's got information about the baptism. Um, we have church at the beach. I mean, how cool is that? Like, we, we get to do that. Um, it's an amazing opportunity to just come out in a public venue to worship Jesus in a very public setting. And especially if you are someone that is a follower of Jesus and you've never been baptized, it's an opportunity for you to make this really public statement of your life and your commitment to Jesus in, a, in this incredibly public way. Um, for some, you know, you might think Church of the Beach, especially if you're, you know, a family and you got young kids, like, oh, that sounds like sand everywhere. It sounds like a mess is what it sounds like. So let's not go to church that Sunday. Um, I want to just encourage those of you that might be thinking like, ah, I'm not sure if that, that might be a good Sunday to just kind of fail. Um, think about it this way. It's a really unique opportunity for discipleship to train your little ones that are in your life or even people that you know as to what it really truly means to follow Jesus. So there's a handful of things for you to do if you want to get baptized. Um, number one, just go to our website. Like I said, there's all sorts of information on there. There's a message that you can listen to. There's kind of a little frequently asked questions section on there. Like um, some of the questions I frequently get asked is, uh, what if I got baptized when I was like, you know, eight days old? Um, can I or should I get baptized again? Um, I'm not going to answer that. You've got to go to the website. So you get the answer right there. Um, and there's a handful of other questions like that that you can just check out. Finally, if, that is some, if you are interested in getting baptized, um, you don't have to sign up. We, we ask that you would. It's just a way for us to kind of have a better idea as to who's planning on getting baptized. Um, and this is kind of a cool thing, is, is we were thinking about this over the past uh, couple weeks. Uh, the, uh, the elders of our Calvary Slow, we meet every week. We pray for you guys. We pray for our church. We pray for the churches in San Luis. We pray for the, the, the ministries that we represent, we're connected to worldwide. Um, and one of the things we were talking about, what are some of the unique things that God has done in our church over the handful of years? And one of the things that we were talking about is, is baptisms in particular, is that over the past five years, we were kind of tallying this up. Between 200 to 250 people have been baptized in this church. Like, that's pretty amazing to think. Like, yeah, you guys, okay, one person can clap. That's cool. Um, I think it's worthwhile just, like, considering and thinking about, yeah, that was, that was a robust clap. And um, it's, it's pretty amazing to think people come here w from a variety of backgrounds, whether they're following Jesus, whether they're not following Jesus at all, or not even a Christian, or have a lot of confusion or questions about who God is, then meet Jesus. And they want to make those steps public, those public steps of following Jesus. One of those steps happens to be baptism. So uh, again, if you've never been baptized, and you are a follower of Jesus, um, my high recommendation would be for you to take that step of obedience and get baptized. And again, like I said, right now, you're probably, if that's you, you're like, I have so many questions. Go to our website, look at the frequently asked questions, listen to the messages that are going to be on there, and then pray about it and ask God to, what, what does obedience for you look like? So anyways, that's, that's that. Um, why don't we open our Bibles to the book of Isaiah chapter 6. We are going to jump right in. Uh, we have been in a series over the past several weeks called The Language of Faith. Um, we've been in a basically a year-long series. If you guys don't have Bibles, you can raise your hands. We have some ushers that would love to get your Bible. We've been in this year-long series called the Year of Biblical Literacy. And what that means is as a church, we've been reading through the Bible and together. And uh, right now, 
Uh, there were basically two apps that we've been using, and at this point, I would probably highly recommend um, if you want to use Uversion to read, that's great, but don't use it as the actual like framework as to what as to where you should be as far as reading. Here's why. There's been some major incongruities we weren't aware of at the very beginning. Now it's become very evident how divergent the two are. For example, all right, the Read Scripture app is on the book of Isaiah, chapter 42. Whereas the Uversion app is on 2 Kings, chapter 23. Kind of, kind of a big distinction there. Um, so what I'm encouraging people to do is stick with the uh, Read Scripture app that is you know, available through all the information that we have available online, and if you want to read it in the Uversion app, which is exactly what I do. So, anyways, that being said, one of the things that we've been doing alongside of that is a series of teachings on Sunday mornings here as we gather to not only help equip you as to how to read the Bible, but also the second section of teachings we've gotten into was called The Story of God, which we basically looked at from Genesis to Revelation, this overarching sweep or narrative of the entire Bible uh, and one of the things that we've been saying is that the entire Bible, even though it's 66 books written by numerous different authors over hundreds of years of time on several different continents, uh, is one unified story that ultimately points to Jesus. That w- that's what we've been saying from the very beginning. And one of the things that we are in now is we've been recognizing that part of what we call Christianity involves a vocabulary, a language. And it's one of the things that we've said from the beginning is that Christians sometimes use strange or odd or unfamiliar terminology. And that shouldn't be shocking. You know, sometimes we have funny w- phrases to describe it, like Christianese, whatever. Um, that shouldn't be shocking because every subculture, every group, every fraternity, sorority, whatever, has their own form of language and unique words in which they use that's basically familiar to the community. Christianity is no different like that. Um, what we've been trying to do is say... Some of the words that are intrinsic, that are part of what it means to be a Christian, are really important. And they're so important that we should not just leave it to chance for us to try to figure them out. That's how important they are. So one of the words that we looked at first week was the word uh, holiness, or the, the word um, glory. Like what, it's a big word, but what in the world does the word glory mean? Last week, uh, Nick taught, and he taught on the word sin. Like what does the word sin mean? And so these are ways in which we are trying to unpack some of these really important words to try to give definition, give meaning to them, because they actually play into the actual narrative or the storyline of the Bible itself. So today we're going to be looking at the word holy or the word holiness. Again, it's one of those words I'm certain you woke up this morning thinking, I want to hear a sermon on holiness, because that's a word you use often in your vocabulary. Just kidding. Like, nobody uses this word holy. Um, the only time we ever use the word holy or holiness is usually within a religious context. And I would even go so far as to say that even when we do use the word holy or holiness, we're not always certain as to what we're talking about. So, for example, some of us, when we think of the word holy, we think of someone that has moral superiority. That's why we have this you know, little catchphrase, like, you are so holier than thou. Like, what does that mean? We're basically saying that you are walking around acting as if you have the moral high ground over everybody, and you're rude, you're a jerk, because you're holier than now. And that's basically the way that we oftentimes think about that concept of holiness. And I would suggest that if that's how we think about the word holiness, then we're already starting at a deficit. Because when we read in the Bible phrases and words like holiness, then we're going to read into the Bible storyline or into the Bible narrative these types of cultural concepts that we've sort of 
picked up or baggage that we bring into the text and it actually discolors. And I would even say detracts or destroys the very image of God. We end up making a God in our own image, in our own likeness, as opposed to allowing, allowing the scripture and the text to inform our understanding of who God is. So we are going to be looking at the word holiness saved. And what I want to do, before we even jump in, and I want to watch a little video from our friends over at the Bible Project. We have, again, just another great video on this particular subject of holiness. And then we will begin to jump in. There's a lot of passages and scriptures that we'll be looking at. And one of the things I've said over the past several weeks is you will need a Bible. Um, one of the things that we've been trying to encourage you to do on Sundays is not just to come without a Bible, but to bring a Bible with you, an actual like hard copy Bible. Again, if you have an app, that's totally cool too. Um, but to not just simply rely upon what's up on the screen. So we are kind of limiting the amount of uh, scripture that we will end up putting up on the screen. So if you don't have a Bible, again, we do have them that we'd love to hand out to you. Or you can share with your, your neighbor. Like, like get out of your, your zone. And uh, if you're an introvert, you're right now sweating. Um, but, but you can share read scripture off of your neighbor's Bible themselves. So we're going to watch this little video clip on the subject of holiness, and then we'll jump into a, a lot of scriptural passages on this. Here we go. You've probably heard the word. You've probably heard the word. You've, you've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness. Because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the most holy place, this the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become 
pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. (laughs) Totally. So it flies over with a hot coal and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development, this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? We don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus. But instead, Jesus' purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now. But Where's this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. This time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there, flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life. We believe the Bible is one complete narrative, so we're making these videos to trace a theme that goes from the beginning to the end. So I thought before we jump in, um, to give kind of like a working definition of 
holiness. And the way I was thinking that the Bible actually refers to a lot of different things that are holy. And that's kind of the framework of what we'll be working from this morning. So we'll look at the holiness of God. We'll look at the holiness of places. Uh, we'll look at the holiness of objects, of time, and of people. So I was thinking that the idea of distinguishing the holiness of God from holiness from all of these other things was, was important because I don't, I, there, there's some connections, but there's also some areas where they're, where they're disconnected from each other, in, in other words. So here's, here's, here's a working definition I want to lay out. So a definition of God's holiness um, would be something along these lines. It's his intrinsic, and the word intrinsic just means it's, it's innate to him. It's part of his essence. It's who he is. It's not something external to God. It, it is a part of actually who he is. It's his intrinsic, utterly unique, and incomparable majesty, greatness, and excellency. Does that make sense? I'll, I'll read it again. I think it's up there, but just listen to it again. His intrinsic, utterly unique, incomparable majesty, greatness, and excellency. In other words, everything that God does is at its highest level of perfection, of excellency. It's, it's, he's holy. He's distinct. And because of this is who he is, there's no one like him, the Bible would say. There's nobody like God in all the universe, in all creation, in all of humanity. No one can be compared to who God is and what he's, what he's like. He's totally, utterly incomparable. John Piper would put it this way, pertaining to God. He says, in a word, the word holy, we have sailed to the world's end in the utter silence of reverence and awe and wonder. There may be yet more to know of God, but that, we will, that, that he will be beyond words. In other words, there's maybe more to know about God, but whatever there is to be known about God, we will not have language or vocabulary to describe or to articulate uh, who he is because he's beyond, literally beyond description. There's some ways in which you can describe him, but at some point, words basically fail. They are not able to capture the essence, the reality of who God ultimately is. So that word we would use to describe God is utterly holy. So versus uh, human holiness or any other form of holiness, and I would basically describe it this way. Um, I think I have it up there. Here we go, human holy. The extrinsic, which means it comes from outside, the intrinsic status that is bestowed upon, otherwise common, or even in some cases, totally unworthy, right? So common and or unworthy objects for God's purposes. And this is where human beings come in, this is where space comes in, place comes in, objects, and so on and so forth, and we'll, we'll unpack that. So what I want to do right now is I'm going to read some passages that talk about the holiness of God, and I'll make a couple comments, and we'll just kind of make our way through the framework that I laid out to you guys earlier. So to do that, I thought it'd be really good for us to read uh, two very important primary passages that kind of describe the holiness of God. They're kind of like, they were actually referenced in the video, but I thought it'd be kind of good for us to stand just out of reverence to God and to his word to read this. So Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 is the first uh, passage that we'll read, and then we'll jump on down to the book of Revelation chapter 4, uh, verses 6 through 11. So just listen along. Again, I'm not, I don't think they're up on the screen, so if you have a Bible, open up there. I think that we have the lights up enough. Hopefully you guys can all see. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, and then Revelation 4. Uh, let me read. Isaiah 6 begins this way. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled 
the entirety of the temple. Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And one called to the other seraphim, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold, they shook at the voice of the seraphim who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, and I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, and he had taken with the tongs from off of the altar. Then he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt has been taken away. Your sin has been atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send to go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. In Revelation chapter 4, verses 6 through 11, says this. This is a, a vision from the Apostle John as he sees. He says, Around the throne I saw each on each side of the throne, there were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. Verse 7, the first living creature like a lion, the second creature like an ox, the third living creature had the face of a man, the fourth living creature like the eagle in flight. So some similarities to what Isaiah saw, although some distinctions as well, or some additions that Isaiah doesn't describe in terms of their anatomy. In verse 8, he says, And the four living creatures, each of them had six wings. They were full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never ceased to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is to come. And whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated upon the throne, who lives forever and ever, then I saw the 24 elders fall down before him who was seated on the throne, and they worshiped him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and they were created. Let's pray. God, we, we are here in your presence. We are always in your presence. There's never any place we can go where your presence is not here. But God, we admit, we confess that we're oftentimes so blinded to the reality of who you are. God, we, we confess that we are so oftentimes more overwhelmed and more focused upon trivial things things that tomorrow won't even matter, things that within the next 10 minutes won't even matter. And God, I pray that you would open our eyes, our awareness, our understanding up to the reality that you, as a God of all gods, a God that is incomparable, a God that is perfect in your excellence, excellent ways, everything you do is excellent, perfect, and just. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to this reality here today. We don't want to just simply come into another church service doing the same things, same routine things over and over again, no matter where our hearts may be, just whether it be just 
super critical or frustrated or overcome. God, we pray this morning you would give us a glimpse of yourself, that we would see just a, a vision of who you are and let that reality transform us. So we commit this morning in your hands and pray, God, that you would help my words to be able to convey uh, with some level of adequacy and accuracy, God, who you are. God, help us to be able to respond rightly and to respond in a way that's appropriate to who you are. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. Would you all grab a seat? So this is about the holiness of God. Isaiah's passage is pretty profound. His aim is not to describe the anatomy of angels, nor was John's. His aim was to basically describe something about the greatness of who God is, the otherness that we would say of of who God is. Uh, Let me give you a couple other examples of how this kind of plays out. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 43, verse 10, it says, I alone am God, God speaks. There's no other God. There never has been and there never will be. Isaiah, chapter 44, verse 6 says this, Thus says the Lord, I am the first and I'm the last besides me. There's no God. Verse uh, chapter 44, verse uh, 6, or another passage, I'm probably wrong. He says, you are my witnesses. Uh, is there any other God? No, there's no other rock, not one. Isaiah 45, verse 7 says, I am the Lord who does all of these things. The point that we see throughout Scripture over and over again by way of reemphasis and also by way of three ways of describing it in the book of Isaiah is there's something utterly unique about God. So when Isaiah hears this holy, holy, holy phrase uh, recited three times. So in our modern day um, literary, we have literally literary devices by which we use, you're going to be writing something, uh, to emphasize uh, certain important points. You know, we would italicize it, we would embolden it. Uh, if you're using, you know, some other platform doesn't, you know, use any form of markup like that, you put like an, an asterisk next to, it, next to it or something like that, or all caps. We have these ways by which we want to make sure that our point, our word, our phrase are basically emphasized. Well, in the ancient Hebrew language, they had the same type of literary devices, though not bold or italicized. They would basically recite the word three times. And this is exactly what's basically going on here, is they're describing something about the holiness of God. It's not just holy as if there's one, but it's three, three times holy. It's a way of emphasizing over and over again, ad infinitum, the the majesty, the greatness, the bigness of God. So this is an important point that we don't want to miss. Again, like I said, if we simply look at the idea of holiness as being nothing more than moral superiority, then we've already started off at a deficit in understanding what this concept is and how important it is that it plays into the biblical storyline as well. So one of the things that we see is that this is, by, by nature, who God is. By, be, another way to, uh, by way of thinking about this, by way of an analogy, next slide has this image of the sun and of the moon. So the sun is, has intrinsic right, holiness, right? It, it, by, it's intrinsic by way of having light. The moon has no light in and of itself. You, you understand this, right? The light that the moon projects is extrinsic. It comes from the sun, and it reflects, that's the, uh, you, you like that, not the scale. Just, just FYI, just in case you're like, is that the scale? No, it's not the scale. Um, the reality is this, is, this is how God created the, the universe. That God himself is light. God himself is who he is by way of his nature. The sum total of all the light that there is. You and I, we, there is a glory. There is a, 
a holiness, in, a, in other words, but it's bestowed upon us. It's conferred upon us, as well as being conferred upon other objects. So let me give you a couple examples of how this plays out, and then we'll end on looking at human holiness or how that can play out by way of the biblical revelation. So let's take a look at the holiness of places. So for one, one of the first times in which this appears in the book of Exodus chapter 3, it's around a bush. And I'll just read it to you. You can listen. It says this, Exodus chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside Moses uh, to see, God then called to him out of the bush. And he said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I, am. here I am. And he said, do not come near. Take off your sandals from off your feet, for this place by which you are standing is holy ground. So the region around this area, God says it's sacred. It's set apart. It's holy. Again, it can't mean moral uh, uh, purity because ground cannot have the moral high ground, right? Uh, get that? That was, a, that, was a, that was a joke, but it's true. At the same time, um, so it means something bigger and greater than just simply simple moral purity, moral excellence. Uh, there's something unique about this ground, this space that God says, this belongs to me. Which, by the way, if you follow the rest of the entire Bible storyline, you begin to realize that there are sacred spaces. But what God's big aim for all creation is that all creation, all the earth, will be filled with the glory of the Lord. That's God's big aim, is to take this planet that suffers under the weight of unholiness, brokenness, sin, rebellion, destruction, evil, death, all of these things that we see constantly within our world, on the news, all the time. God's aim is to one day rid the world, to literally kick the, the, the world free from the hell that it suffers under. That's God's big aim. And so this is what we see within this particular, we see these moments. The tabernacle was another one. We see in Exodus chapter 28, verse 29, Second uh, Chronicles chapter 35, verse 5. These are, again, elements in which we see the tabernacle, this uh, tent that was out in the wilderness that sort of housed kind of this hot spot of God's presence. This also was a holy place. The uh, second thing that we see, or the third thing I should say, is the holiness of objects. So within the tabernacle, there were objects. There were like, you know, pots and pans and other elements that were actually used within the sacred ceremony of this ancient civilization. So Exodus chapter 40, verse 10 says this, You shall also anoint the altar, a burnt offering, and all of its utensils, and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. So we see this altar, we see these utensils, they become holy. The showbread, meaning there was actual bread in there, that was holy, it was sacred, set apart for God. Was it, so another way to think about the idea of holy and its opposite, um, the opposite of holy would be like common, just normal, just the status quo. Or in some ways you can think of it as, as unholy, which is like unworthy, it's, it's, it's marred, it's broken. Um, but what God does through holiness is he takes common things or even unworthy things and he confers upon them value and worth it, again it's it's like a glory that is being shown upon like the sun shines upon the the moon like we you and i as human beings we don't necessarily have intrinsic glory in us it comes from god it is brought upon us conferred upon us by god himself so again, second, or 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 4 also describes holiness of objects. It says, They brought up the ark of the Lord uh, to the tent of meeting and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. So again, you get this idea that there were these objects that were basically set apart or made holy for the purposes of God. Uh, the other one that we can think about is holiness of time. 
This is an important one because God actually created time of which out of a seven-day work week, one of those days actually becomes separated, separate for God's purposes, for God's people. This is called the Sabbath. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 says this, Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The big idea behind this is that uh, it's, it's a time frame. It's a 24-hour time frame in which God says, use this seventh day of the week for you to rest. Six days you work, the seventh day you rest. You enter into this time of refreshment, of worship, of acknowledgement of who God is. It's a timer that's basically separated as holy. Now let's get into this final thing and think about this because there are a handful of passages I want to read and we'll wrap it up with some concluding thoughts. Is the holiness of people. Now again, keeping in mind the idea that between the sun and the moon, the sun has intrinsic light, the moon has extrinsic light. And you and I as human beings, God is intrinsically holy. You and I have, if we walk with God, if we recognize who God is and what God is calling us to, we have this extrinsic calling or conference of God's glory, God's call upon our lives, to which we now become part of who God is and what God wants to do in our lives, in this world, through us. Which, the way the video points out, is it's amazing when you think about what Jesus does he comes in the fullness of the glory that we looked at a couple weeks ago that Jesus is the representation the representing the represent representation of God in the flesh bearing forth all that God is and I love how in the video clip it points out that when Jesus comes he transfers his healing his goodness to others but then ultimately on the cross he absorbs into himself all of their death and all of their brokenness, and all of their being soiled and defilement and ruin upon himself. And that's what the cross is. It's Jesus taking upon himself all of our death and brokenness and destruction that comes as a result of our rebellion and sin, and which, you know, again, simply can be reduced as nothing more than saying no to God. That's, that's, what, that's where it begins. It comes by beginning by saying no to God. No, God, I'll figure it out myself. No, God, I don't need you. Thank you. My life can be figured out on my own. Thank you. And everything else begins to devolve from there. So if you want to think of it this way, to be holy is to be like God. So for a person to be holy, what does that mean? In short, it just simply means to be like God, to look like God. We have this phrase, and you know, we say to be godly, right? Godliness. Well, what does that mean? I once heard it described to me it, like this. It's like being God-like. Godly is being God-like. That's, that's simply what it means. Godliness is being God-likeness, right? It's a God-likeness in you that when people look at you, when people talk to you, there should be something about your life that resembles who God is like by, way he, by the way that you act, by the things that you say, by the way that you talk, by the actions that you do, that there's an element about that. So to be holy is to be like God. To be unholy, on the other hand, is to be unlike God. That's what it means to be unholy. Um, and, and by the way, we don't have to do anything to, to like have this. Like this, this is by nature. This is our default mode. This is what it looks like when you wake up in the morning and you haven't had your coffee yet. Like you are, you are just straight up unholy. Like we don't look like God. Um, and and, and if, if you think that you begin to look like God just because you have coffee, you, you, you've deluded yourself. But the fact of the matter is, is that at least it, it begins like that. It's the default mode of our heart is, is unholiness, unlike God 
in every respect. I mean, there may be some elements in which our lives may reflect God or look like God in certain ways. But again, that's, that's, that may be by way of nature. You know, we might just have a, a personality that doesn't get really angry. You might come across to some people and you look really patient. But in reality, you are losing your patience inside. And there's all sorts of four-letter words that are going off in your head, even though they're not coming out of your mouth. And people might be like, well, you're so patient. And like, and you're so like God. Like, not really. Like, like, you're not really like God at all. But you just fooled everybody. And the point of the matter is this. Is to be unholy is to be unlike God. Uh, sin ultimately, like what sin is, like what Nick had taught about last week, sin is ultimately against God, first and foremost. Like sin, when we say no, we're not saying no to the cosmic power, lowercase p, of the universe. We're not saying no to Mother Nature. We're not saying no to some sort of cosmic entity. We're ultimately saying no to the very one that formed and fashioned you in his likeness and image, to bear his name, to look like him. To have life, when God breathed into you and you became a human being, bearing his image. That's what sin first and foremost is. It's saying no. It's walking out of alignment, walking out of agreement with God. But sin is also against others, which, you know, again, turn on the news. You get that very clearly and vividly, that when we sin, when we act out against God, our sin doesn't just simply impact or affect us. It also affects others, but also at the same time affects us. It alienates and ruins and desensitizes you and I in our hearts. And we become literally less than human, subhuman. So, for example, in the news, when you read about somebody who does some sort of horrible, atrocious, sinful action or evil, there's this tendency to be like, oh my gosh, it is so subhuman. Well, that's, that's, there's a reason for that. Because we, there's something about that that we don't simply look at that, that we're like, that, that's cool. It's all part of evolution. It's all part of like the dominant overcoming the weak. We're not okay with that. We look at that and we, we are stopped by that. We, are, we, we cannot be settled with that. There's a reason for that. Because we bear the image of God and we're troubled by acts of violence and injustice and destruction upon other people's lives because we know that to act in a subhuman manner is simply not okay. But all sin is a form of dehumanizing us, dehumanizing others. And because of that, it is, a, it, is, it is an affront against this God who's holy, who's excellent in all of his ways. And one final thing that I would say with about that, this is one of the reasons why, when you read in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament, that when people had these encounters with God, there were these moments of incredible reaction. Because they're in the presence of something that's so far beyond and above them, they melt, literally melt. I mean, think about it this way, okay? How many times have you been driving down the road, God bless you, and you see the, you know, a black and white car behind you, and all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh. You slow down, you take your foot off the gas, you put on, well, you don't put on the brake because you don't see your brake lights, right? That's my trick. Um, you slow down at least, and you're like... And you're watching them because you want to make sure that they're not going to pull you over. So wh- why is that happening? What is going on? How would you describe that, that reaction that's going on? I'll tell you what's happening in that reaction. That reaction is you are in the presence of the law. You are in the presence of, quote, unquote, like supposedly uh, the, the epitome, the perfection, or the person that has the power to enforce the law. And you feel the sense of law violation. You, you understand? You follow? Does that make sense? And you're trying to shape yourself up. 
take that analogy into infinity in the presence of the God that made you. If God were to come here right now in this place, what would our response be? Like, think about this. How would we actually think about the presence of God, this perfect God? So as we kind of wrap this up, I only want to just read a handful of passages for you to think about because as the New Testament plays this out, that those that follow Jesus are actually called to live a particular way of lifestyle that reflects the God that rescued them. Now, this is really no different than from the rest of the storyline when God, for example, called Egypt out of, uh, the Israelites out of Egypt. Was he calls them to say, now be my people, which is another way of saying, be my people. Like, like you are mine. Uh, I'm holy, therefore you be holy. I'm conferring upon you uh, a purpose and a, and a meaning in this life. So be like me, act like me, live according to my laws, my ways, and we'll get along. And what happens is Israel basically does not do that. It's very similar to those that follow Jesus. So when God calls us, he calls us to follow Jesus, to be like God in every way. This is how the book of 1 John describes this. Uh, 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through chapter 2, verse 1 says this. This is the message. I think I have these up on the screen, so you can follow along on these ones. I figured since uh, if, you, if you made it all the way to the end, congratulations, well, I'll give you a couple freebies. So there you go. Uh, this is the message that we have heard from him and we proclaim to you that God is light. This is uh, John using this metaphor to describe holiness, this idea of inapproachable or unapproachable light or beauty or excellency. And he describes it by using the word light. God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. And if we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness... We lie, we don't practice the truth. Think about this. He's saying that, look, if we claim to actually walk in agreement, walk in relationship with this God who is light, who is holy, and yet we ourselves are consistently, regularly, frequently uh, fighting up against that and walking in darkness, we, there's, there's an inconsistency. The way he just throws down a word, he says we, we lie. There, there, is a, there is a deception about our lifestyle. Verse 7, he says, if we walk in light as he is in light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, the Son, cleanses us from all sin. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. Verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, my little children, I'm writing to you these things to you, so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So what we learn from this little section of passages here, number one, is that holiness, or to be holy, the, the idea of being holy, looks like confessing sin. It looks like, the word confession is a great word. It basically means to say the same thing as. In other words, we don't sugarcoat words for this. We don't make up other alternative language to define our sin. We call it what God calls it. We recognize that maybe our actions maybe just are as bad as we assume they are. Or maybe, shockingly, maybe even worse. Maybe our actions, maybe those little things that we have, those idiosyncrasies that we have about our lives, maybe are actually far worse than we can even imagine and cause even great consternation or grief to those around us that are most proximity in our lives. And he's saying, first of all, we see it looks like confessing sin. But secondly, this is the good news, it looks like forgiveness of sin. This is the amazing thing. You know that God's aim, God's desire is to actually wash and cleanse us? It's not just forgiving. It's, it goes even beyond that. It's this idea of cleansing, washing. 
taking away the utter defilement and the ache and the pain and the ruin and the mark and the shame and all that goes along with it. This is what Jesus does is he washes it away. It also looks like practicing righteousness because this is what he describes, uh, walking in light as he is in a light. It's the idea of practicing righteousness. And then third, uh, fourthly, it looks like having fellowship with one another. In other words, being on the same page, being in, in, uh, in, in communion with each other. It doesn't mean that we agree with every single person around us, but it means that there is, there's a sense whereby we are working together with other people that we may or may not even agree with, but the aim is love. God, we, we want to walk in relationship with other people, even though it may be tough, and it's radically challenging. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verses 14. I'll read a couple of these and move on. Paul would later go on and say this. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, if you've been around Christian circles any length of time, you know that this is like the quote-unquote dating verse. Um, it, it, is this exactly what Paul... Absolutely not. Paul is not thinking about dating. I can guarantee you that. But I, I think there are ways, that being said, I think it can be applied to that. Don't, don't, don't misunderstand that. But he's definitely not thinking about like, now let's, what can I write to the single bro that's like 20 years old, who's finishing up school, who's like looking to date, a handful of girls. Like, what can I write to that guy? It's not what he's thinking. But just listen to it for what it is. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord does Christ have with Belial or evil? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and I will walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing, for I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves in every, from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. It's a mouthful. What does it mean? It means that we live in a world where there's all sorts of means by which you and I can compromise what has been given to us, what has been conferred upon us. You understand this, right? There's ways by which we can soil, ruin, defile, destroy, disrupt this unique gifting, this unique call that God's given us. So really what Paul is simply saying is that because God has done something for you, walk in a level that's consistent with that, being aware of the traps, being aware of the other means by which defilement can happen. So back on track with the whole idea of the dating thing. I want to address that because at the end of the day, that there is, I think, some level of application. But it's not just simply limited to dating. It could be just in any other form of even like business or whatever. Like what types of partnerships are we making with people? Do you know that we will become like the people we hang out with most? Do you know that? It's a simple fact of life. It's one of the reasons why your mom told your junior high age self be careful who you hang out with, son, daughter, because you're going to become like them. If you're all smoking weed, you're going to smoke weed. You know, you remember that, come on, mom, I'm not going to do that. And then the reality is that we just have that propensity to become like who we hang out with most. And really what Paul is describing is being care be careful of this. There is a system at work in this world that is destructive, that is in opposition to who God is, in opposition to the holiness, the holy nature that God is wanting to bring forth in each one of us, be careful of that, to not walk in, 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 in any form of connectedness or agreement with that. So what happens if you're in that place? You have to seriously think about what type of an impact 
that these other types of influences can be having upon your soul for righteousness, become like God or to become something unlike God. I want to finish by reading a quote and we'll wrap it up with this thought. There's this writer, guy by the name of David Wells, and he had written this article. It's called, Is God's Holiness Essential? It's a very long quote. I just want you to listen to it. Listen to what he says. I actually posted it on Facebook. If you had read this earlier this week, uh, that's because that's from this, where this is from. Just listen to what he says. The loss of the traditional vision of God as holy is now manifested everywhere in the evangelical world. It is the key to understanding why sin and grace have become such empty terms. Divorce from the holiness of God, sin is merely defeating behavior or a breach of inetiquette. Divorce from the holiness of God, grace is merely empty rhetoric, pious window dressing, and modern technique by which sinners work out their own salvation. Divorce from the holiness of God, our gospel, good news, becomes indistinguishable from any other host of alternative self-help doctrines. Divorce from the holiness of God, our public morality is reduced to a little more than accumulation of trade-offs between competing private interests. Divorce from the holiness of God, our worship becomes mere entertainment. The holiness of God is the very cornerstone of Christian life, for it's the foundation of reality Sin is defiance of God's holiness. The cross is the outworking and victory of God's holiness. And faith is a recognition of God's holiness. Knowing that God is holy is therefore the key to knowing life as it truly is. Knowing Christ as he truly is. Knowing why he came and knowing how life will end. I want to finish with a thought. When I was about 19 years old, I had this experience. I had gone through a really overwhelming, challenging, difficult circumstance in my life. And I remember my world is like literally turned upside down. And I remember one night going out, opening a scripture, and landing on Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. That passage has a really unique personal impact upon my life. And I, I don't know, I think it was out at the beach. I can't even remember exactly where I was at, to be honest with you. But I remember wherever it was that I was at, reading this particular passage, and there are two things that really stood out to me. Number one was the passage where it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, then I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And then the second was how Isaiah was, was cured and, and cleansed. The, the first was this reality that until, at least, we don't know exactly the circumstances in Isaiah's life, but whatever happened was when this king, Uzziah, died, then the glory of God began to become evident and aware to Isaiah. It so radically changed him. So it showed me, it highlighted to me the fact that sometimes I'm not able to see in my life, in my experience, how great, how significant God is because there are other things in my life that are vying for my attention. You you follow? There are other things that are blingy, that are flashy, that are attractive, that basically have exercised some level of enchantment over my own soul. And I'm not able, I'm not open to see the glory of God because there are other Uzziahs in my life that are basically taking or usurping the role in which God alone should be taking my life. The second of which is Isaiah describes this, exam- this experience where he, when he sees who God is, he's overwhelmed by the fact that, oh my gosh, I'm unclean. And the voice that comes to him is just stay where you're at, Isaiah. And then from the throne... To Isaiah comes his healing. And what stood out to me in that time was God comes to us. 
It's not God saying, come to me, come climb the ladder, come how, some, somehow get your life clean and organized and reoriented, and then I'll take care of you. God says, no, stay where you are in your brokenness. I will come to you in the midst of your defilement and brokenness, and I will heal you. I'll make you whole. I'll bring the cold to your lips, per se. Jesus says, I will come into this world, into the midst of the darkness and brokenness and death. This is the good news that we celebrate as the gospel, that God is not saying do X, Y, and Z to get my attention. God says, I have come to you. God initiates. And this is the amazing reality that you and I step into right now, is that God, throughout all eternity, has been worshipped and adored and honored, has always been holy. Never was a day in which he was not holy. But for some of us, many of us, we're just not even aware of it. Maybe today is the day in which your eyes, our eyes collectively are just beginning to be open, cracked just a bit to see the otherness, the greatness, the beauty of who God is and the invitation from God to come in and to be transformed, to be washed, to have your sin taken away, to be cleansed, to have all your guilt, the shame that you wear daily, moment by moment, to be taken off of you in exchange, be given a robe, what we looked at a couple weeks ago, this robe of righteousness, this robe that confers beauty and glory upon you from God. In other words, to receive the gift that God offers. So my hope this morning, as we respond by taking the bread and drinking the cup and come to the table, that we be reminded that this is exactly what our God does. He comes to us. That in spite of his holiness, God, in, God comes to us. And rather than God being defiled, he takes upon himself the consequences of our defilement, sin and death, into himself, but then in exchange gives us his purity, his holiness, confers it upon us so that we shine. Our lives become different. We walk in a different manner. Everything about our life becomes radically transformed from the relationships that we have to how we think about our sexuality to how we think about our job, our vocation, our life. Everything becomes transformed in the light of God's holy presence. So the invitation now is to respond. So why don't we all stand and worship team will come on up. We'll wrap this up with a song. We'll dismiss you guys. If you have kids in the children's ministry, uh, you might want to consider picking them up. You're more than welcome to bring them back in here. But I'm going to pray. I want to pray for us. If you're here this morning and you're either not a Christian or you have felt far from God and you want God to transform you, I'm going to pray with you. I want to pray for you. And if, if that's you, I'd love for you to just pray along with me in your own heart. Just a simple prayer of trusting Jesus, confessing sin, so in other words, repentance, turning from sin, but also faith, trusting God. So let me pray, and if that's you, I'd love to, for you to just pray along with me. So why don't we bow our heads, close our eyes, and then if that's you, I'd love for you to just pray after me. Jesus, I come to you with an open heart, trusting you. Bring my sin my brokenness, my guilt, my shame, my defilement. And I lay it at your feet. You're my Redeemer, my Savior, the one who loves me. I 
confess it to you. I lay it at your feet, and I want to turn from it. And God, I trust you to be the one to wash me and to make me new, to bring new life. to walk out of here a new person. I pray these things in Jesus' name. We're going to sing, worship, respond, eat the bread.